Okay, the scripture reading for today is from 2 Corinthians 7. You can follow along in your Bibles or up on the screen. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do, not, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice." Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you, you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what vengeance, at every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. This is God's word. Good morning. Are we on? Good. Uh, if you're visiting with us here this morning, uh, you'll notice we're going through a series, uh, and we're in the middle of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're studying, uh, the topic of the series is called Authenticity, and we've been studying uh, what it is that the Christian life looks like uh, from the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, my name is Adam, and I'm a member here uh, so while I'm up here giving it a shot this morning, uh, and if you are visiting and if you're looking for a church home, I definitely encourage you uh, to also come back again and hear from one of our pastors, uh, because I think that would be a blessing to you as well. Um, but before we open up God's word this morning, um, would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for calling us 
and inviting us here to hear and to receive your life-giving and your true word this morning. We pray this morning for the preaching of your word here and around the world, and we pray that it would glorify you, that it would declare the unmatched goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that he offers that is unlike anything else. We do also pray for our children here and in the children's church this morning and wherever they might be. We pray for those teaching them, and we ask that your word would be a source of truth to them as it is also to us. So we're also grateful that we know you hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever received an unwanted, miserable assignment? Maybe this came from a boss or a teacher, maybe a parent or a client. You knew that taking on this project was going to be miserable. It was going to be hard work. It probably wouldn't go well. It was likely to become embarrassing. You might become a laughing stock, possibly treated poorly, and maybe it was even going to become dangerous at some point. Such things happen to us at some point. Uh, but try complaining to Titus. As we open... 2 Corinthians 7, uh, let me just give you a quick summary of what's been going on uh, with Paul and Titus. Uh, Titus is, is, of course, Paul's younger co-laborer, and they were together in Turkey. Uh, Paul writes uh, what is called a severe letter uh, in order to correct the church in Corinth, uh, which is in Greece, where some people had been opposing Paul's teaching. Um, and then... Paul sends Titus from Turkey to Greece with the severe letter in hand. And so Titus has to make this long, dangerous journey only to arrive in Corinth where he doesn't know anyone and where I guess he finally expects to arrive not knowing how it's going to go. He probably expects to arrive and, and it's something like, hey, I'm Titus, you know, Paul's friend. Yeah, you know, the Paul that you oppose. Um, uh, by the way, here's a severe letter from Paul. Um, uh, in the meantime, do you have anything I can eat or anywhere I can stay? I'm pretty tired from my long journey. Um, can you imagine how Titus must have felt with this assignment? Paul had previously been in Corinth himself trying to deal with this issue, and it had lingered and continued, which is why Titus had to go back. So if Paul couldn't solve the issue himself in person, Titus probably had doubts whether or not he could solve it. Here, as we look at 2 Corinthians 7, Paul resumes his account of this whole ordeal. Uh, he starts uh, commending the Corinthian church, who surprisingly, against all odds, have positively responded to this letter of correction that Titus brought. And so today, I want to look at this unlikely repentance uh, from the Corinthian church uh, as it... Um, because it provides the Apostle Paul, who is currently suffering in many things, with a great source of joy and comfort. And so as we continue and look at this series of authentic Christianity from 2 Corinthians, what I want to identify and explore today from the section of Paul's letter is to notice three stated characteristics of God's people, characteristics which are very much unlike the outside world. So the first one 
is that uh, Paul encourages them to practice selfless relationships. The second is Paul celebrates their sincere repentance. And the third is that Paul describes his own substantiated rejoicing. That's a mouthful, but we'll get to it. Um, and as I do, as we get started, um, I want to be sure to say and identify that while we're talking about God's people being unlike the world, um, this is not at all to say or to claim that we're better than everyone else. It's not at all to pat ourselves on the back as if we're so good. But instead, this study is meant as a recognition of how different and how wonderful and how entirely good are God's ways compared to anything else in the world. He alone is the source of goodness, which we endeavor to reflect. So the first observation is that Paul encourages the church in Corinth to embrace selfless relationships. In our culture, we're used to keeping a comfortable and safe distance from people. We carefully manage what people know about us, uh, what they see us do. Why? So that they'll think well of us, so that we're not inconvenienced by them. And this can be a very strange and lonely thing when people come into our culture, uh, particularly Southern California, uh, from other countries, from other cultures. Um, and so I want to ask, are we aware of this? Do we even notice ourselves doing this as we so closely manage what people think of us? Uh, we turn our computers and our phones in a direction where no one can see them. We avoid our bosses or phone calls when we don't want to be accessible. We roll up our windows, we change lanes, we change directions to avoid people who are asking for money. We find and search for desirable houses and neighborhoods which are built to give us privacy so that we can do what we, can, what we do without people noticing. But this passage starts with a totally contrary idea. Paul says, make room in your hearts for us. For we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. So there's this kind of selfless relationship that Paul's claiming characterizes God's people. And it's so unlike and so good in comparison to the utilitarian and the self-serving relationships which we endure all week long. All week long, as we go to the places we go, uh, we encounter these relationships where, where we are bosses or employees, customers or service providers, teachers or students, lenders or borrowers, um, marketers or consumers. All these transactional things where we're utilizing each other for something. But this is not how God's people are to be, according to Paul. This is not how God's church is to operate. Back in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Since we have these promises, let us bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. The idea here is that because we are God's people, because we have received Christ, we ought to now live much differently. He goes on to say, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And Paul doesn't mean this in a weird cultish sense where we live all together in a compound, but he means being joined together and sincere, committed, selfless, not flaky relationships. This past spring, uh, I, I coached a little league baseball team for the first time. Uh, it was a great experience. We connected with kids and families. We built many great friendships. 
And we ended the season as united as a team could be. But as soon as the season ended, those relationships, that common bond that we shared, began to fade away. And the same can be true as we consider our jobs, the other teams that we're on, the clubs that we are a part of, the bands that we play in. All these can be great experiences, and we can have this this unity. But these, compared to Christ's church, are very fragile, very temporary. So as, as God's people, our unity and our bond is not temporary, and it's not utilitarian, but it's selfless, and it's secured. And in these ways, it's qualitatively different from the relationships that we find in the world. When we take vows to become members of this church, we commit ourselves to the support of the church and to submit to the church. That's not to say that you have to be a member of this church forever for the rest of your life. See, we're not cultish. It's not that you can't get out, but it's that there is a selfless commitment to the church and to the other members here. This is not something that's meant to be flaky as the people of God. When our lives are threatened, when we're utterly overwhelmed, when we're sorrowful or pained by our circumstances, when our tables overflow, when our wallets overflow, no matter what we face, the Lord gives us one another. Personally, growing up, uh, while my mom was sick and when she died, uh, it was our church that provided support to my family. While there were other people that that did nice things for us, it was the church who year after year supported us in many ways, including including childcare, finances, love, support, uh, fellowship on holidays. This is something that we don't find in other places. And it's so much better It's so refreshing. It's such a gift that the Lord has given us. Even though sin still exists within the church. Uh, Maybe if you followed the news, it was excruciating this week uh, to hear of of reports of prominent pastors uh, abusing power and attempting to cover up their wrongs. And this should be the last place where it happens. This, the church, should be the last place that happens. And it shakes us up precisely because it's so contrary to the nature of the church, being Christ's people who he gave himself for and who he's given us one another for, and we ought to give our lives for one another. Personally, uh, I'm very thankful for the pastors here at this church um, who don't come with attitudes of, of saying, I'm the boss, I'm in charge here but who I believe, like Paul and Jesus, have given themselves frequently and sacrificially to serve the church. Shepherds who've done no wrong, not corrupted, not taken advantage, like Paul says, but who seek to give their lives for the flock. And I desperately wish that this was more common. I wish it was more frequent and consistent in my own life. And so as a church, uh, I just remind us to keep praying and encouraging our own pastors, um, and our own leaders and volunteers as they seek selfless relationships here in our church. Secondly, the second characteristic I want to point out 
is that Paul celebrates the Corinthians' sincere repentance. So as he goes on and keeps talking, he says that he recognizes that when the severe letter he sent with Titus, when he sent it, it probably caused grief. But he takes time and he takes the care to assure the Corinthians yet again that the point was not to shame them or simply to reprimand them, but it was to encourage them to recognize their wrongdoing and to repent, which was ultimately for their own good. He says in chapter 7, uh, verses 9 and following, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so from that, I want to make three quick observations of how Paul describes repentance. If we were to ask the question, what does repentance look like? Uh, there's three things uh, I'd like to point out real quick about repentance. The first is that there is some aspect of grief that it brings. None of us like to be corrected or told that we're wrong. When it happens, there's some kind of, of weight that hits us. There's a shot to our pride. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's just that we need to brush our teeth or we need to show up to class or work on time, things we know we need to do. Or it, it could be something that we did that was morally wrong, something that hurt people. Whether it's wrong or whether it's just something good that we ought to do, it bothers us and we don't like to be corrected. When we are corrected, it brings out the threat of pride, fear, embarrassment. Um, we, we're confronted with uh, self-interest and how we, how we handle different relationships. Are we seeking uh, personal advantages? Are we willing to submit ourselves to others? But we have to recognize when that happens. We have to get past those initial feelings. We have to get past that initial impulse to resist and to resent being corrected. Like Paul commends the Corinthians for, we ought to humbly seek what's right and maintain unity as best as we can, rather than respond by taking offense right away. A second observation about repentance that Paul's talking about here is that it's not, merely re it's not merely regret, but it is turning away from sin and toward God. And as a parent, I'm constantly trying to teach my children this, not just to be upset about the consequences of what they do, not just to be upset, upset about the situations that result from their behavior, but we want them to despise wrongdoing, to seek what is good, and to seek what's pleasing to God instead. We don't just want to regret our disobedience, that it results in various injuries or punishments, but we as believers need to recognize what we do is wrong and to strive for God-glorifying obedience. See, in verse 11, Paul says, See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what vengeance. So Paul is here describing what the Corinthians' re repentance looked like and why it is a source of encouragement to him. They've cleared and separated themselves from what is wrong. 
They've expressed indignation and disgust about the wrong that they've participated in. They've expressed a fear of being divided from one another and from Paul. And they've also expressed a sincere longing and zeal for vengeance. That is, for right, uh, right response to the wrong that's been done. In Revelation chapter 18, uh, verse 15, there's this scene that when Christ returns, he abolishes all forms of slavery, all forms of trafficking. But when that happens, the traders of the slaves simply lament their loss of their product, the loss of their profits. They don't have a concern for what they did and how it was an affront to God's holy ways. And we're used to seeing this response all the time. When some leader um, is accused of a wrongdoing, rather than being upfront and apologizing and admitting it, uh, publicly they'll dance around issues, uh, whether that's legally or rhetorically, just to minimize the consequences that they might face or to manage their PR issues. But this is totally different from what we see uh, with John Newton. Contrast the slave traders in Revelation 18 uh, with the hymn writer John Newton, uh, who wrote many wonderful hymns, including Amazing Grace, uh, who John Newton, upon becoming a Christian, abandoned the slave trade. And later, he admitted and he, he confessed that he was humiliated by his former participation in the slave trade. And he later devoted himself, his time and his energy, to speak out against it and to fight it. So while we might just respond with regret, Christ calls us and Paul encourages us to respond in true repentance where we turn away from our sin and toward God. And the third thing I want to point out about this repentance uh, and how it looks is that repentance results in salvation without regret, is what Paul says. True repentance is not mere regret, and it's not something we will regret, according to Paul. On the other hand, God's word, Paul's words, warn us of worldly grief without repentance, which produces death. And so we know that it's only through repentance, it's only through turning to God that we are delivered from the curse of death and we find the kind of substantiated joy that Paul goes on to describe. So the third characteristic for us to look at about authentic, uh, about authentic Christian life as God's people is the substantiated rejoicing that Paul finds. And that's a mouthful. Substantiated rejoicing. What do I mean by that? It's that our rejoicing has legitimate reasons. Even while we suffer, we can rejoice legitimately knowing that our grief will be overcome and that Paul specifically sees that his labors are not in vain as he sees the repentance of others. Remember that as Paul writes, he's, going on, he's undergoing a number of adversities which he listed back in chapter 6, which we looked at last week. There were nine things we noticed. Afflictions, hardships, calamities, riots, beatings, imprisonments, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. All these things are going on in Paul's life. 
as he waits for this response from the Corinthians and as he waits for Titus' return. And so when Titus returns, bringing this good report, Paul says, I am filled with comfort. In all of our afflictions, I'm overcoming with joy. I'm overflowing with joy. For even as we came into Macedonia and our bodies had no rest, we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And so as Paul waits on this response uh, from Corinth, He waits for Titus to return. He's in the midst of these severe challenges. Some of these, like riots, beatings, imprisonments, are beyond what most of us in this room will ever endure. At the same time, many of these things that Paul faces are the same kinds of things that we face every day. Various hardships, calamities, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. And in the midst of all these things, Paul finds strength and he finds even joy to carry on, to continue trusting and following, serving Christ and putting himself forward to undergo even more suffering as he serves. So where does he find this strength and this joy? As I said before, it's from his observation of the unlikely repentance of the Corinthians. How can this be? You see, Titus and the Corinthians uh, were not Jewish. Uh, I want to look closely, do a real quick study of what Paul is saying here as he compares godly grief and worldly grief. Uh, Titus and the Corinthians were not Jewish, uh, so they would have likely read the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, uh, excuse me, in uh, a Greek version. And so when Paul talks about worldly grief and godly grief, he's using imagery from the Greek version of the Old Testament. He's using familiar words. And what Paul is, is describing as he's comparing these griefs uh, is he's, he's alluding to the kind of grief that we all face as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. It's the grief that came. Uh, it's stated three, the same word is stated three times in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve's sin and after they're getting the curses of their disobedience from God. God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, grief, you shall eat of it all day long, all the days of your life. And so all the days of their life, Adam and Eve and all of their offspring, that's us, are going to be toiling after our daily sustenance in our labors. And it's the same grief that Noah's father named him after uh, in Genesis 5. Noah was named after the desire to have these griefs and these toils finally alleviated. His father named him saying, this is the one who's going to alleviate our griefs. And so there's this hope in the Old Testament that eventually there's going to be an alleviation of the griefs and the troubles of this world, of the life that we face It's the same grief that Isaiah later tells us Israel experiences uh, after they rebel against God and are sent into exile. This grief, it is. It's the difficulty, the toil, and the pain of life that comes in a sin-cursed world. It builds and it builds on our hearts and our lives. It feels crushing, and it's the grief that comes to all of us at times. 
Whether you work in construction, with children, with computers, with customers or patients, we can always count on things going wrong. We always have troubles, toils, and it's the weight of this work, this trouble, that bring us anxiety and burdens that need to be alleviated. And the world doesn't offer us any real solution to this. So how can Paul and Titus rejoice? It's because the same word is promised to be alleviated elsewhere in Isaiah. Uh, and Isaiah promises that on the great day of the Lord, when Christ returns, everlasting joy will be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and this sorrow and grief and all sighing will flee away. It's the same idea that's being presented in Revelation 7, that hunger and thirst will be wiped away with every tear. When Christ returns and brings a new heaven and a new earth, which are free of the consequences of sin. And it's this one true and final victory over grief that's only found in Jesus Christ. Grief came as a consequence for sin, but for those who look to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, he's entered the world, as we sang earlier, he's entered the world and provided with us with a hope and a salvation from his blood. He promises to be our victory. And even now, even now, while the grief persists, he is our comfort and our joy. Without Christ, grief will only produce death. We can try to stay healthy, we can try to stay attractive, productive, we can try to stay comfortable, but eventually, death comes for all of us. And friends, the world does not have a hope like this. It doesn't offer us any ultimate triumph over the grief and the trouble that we see so commonly in the world. There's nothing outside of Jesus Christ to suggest that one day goodness, joy, and gladness will finally triumph. And in our society, we don't deal with the fragility and the troubles of this life. We remove from plain sight the poverty, the elderly, the sick. We don't want to deal with it. We don't, op we don't often talk openly about our troubles with one another. We ignore it or we gossip. So we put these things out of sight and out of mind. But they're there. They're there in the world. They're there in each of our lives. Um, in a previous job, I spent years traveling to developing countries around the world to see some of the worst human conditions that children grow up in. I visited landfills, remote villages, streets, orphanages, slums, children's hospitals. These are realities of the world. A few months ago, on a trip to Atlanta, um, I was with a friend, and we ended up going back to our, our hotel room weeping after seeing the condition, the hopeless condition of so many homeless people around that city. How can these things be? When we look around the world honestly, we should be overwhelmed by the needs and the troubles and pains 
because they're real. But at the same time, there's only one thing that offers any promise. There's only one thing that offers an ultimate triumph over these things. And it's the promise of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that promises to triumph over this. But beyond the promise, what Paul is saying and why he's comforted and why he's rejoicing is because we also have evidences that this is true. As we see the grief around us, which threatens to crush us, like Paul, he sees the unlikely repentance of the Corinthians. And he sees that that's evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in the world. And so he rejoices. Against all odds, the Corinthians have repented. And so friends, for those of us, for those of you who are trusting in Christ, know that you have a reliable hope in Christ. We are carried along and we're able to endure. We're even given rich joy in this meantime while we suffer and struggle. Like Paul and like Titus, we ought to notice the fruit of God's work around us. When we see selfless love, when we see the sincere repentance of others, we're not only given this glimpse of the goodness of God and who he is, the goodness of his ways, but we see that he's already at work conquering sin and grief in our lives, that he's bringing us comfort and he loves us now, and that one day he will bring all that work which he's begun to completion, as he promises. And so the unlikely repentance of the Corinthians, like our unlikely repentance, is not only a marker of the authenticity of the real faith that we have in Jesus, but it's a marker of the truth of Christ and that faith in him is not a fiction, it's not in vain. Like Titus, when we see this unlikely repentance and this selflessness, whether it's in us or in those around us, it gives us evidence that the Holy Spirit is changing hearts and lives. It's evidence that Christ is truly ours and we are his. It's evidence that his blood has purchased us and his Holy Spirit is at work within us. And so the outcome of this story is not that Titus could say, oh man, that terrible assignment was at least a success. No, we see that Titus was refreshed. His spirit was refreshed and he found comfort and joy in this ordeal. And this led him to persevere. So when we notice that the Lord has begun a good work in us, we find confidence and comfort to endure the onslaught of the griefs that we face. Because we see evidence of Christ's unmistakable work in the world, which we are assured he will carry on unto completion when he returns. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are a God who loves, a God who comforts and even changes us. We thank you for sending your son to provide a way of salvation for us, to provide forgiveness of our sins, to provide alleviation from the consequences of the sin all around us. For me and for all of us, I pray that you'd help us and cause us to grow in being selfless towards one another, 
and to those around us. I pray that you would do painful surgery on our hearts, which leads us through the difficult path of life and of repentance. Help us, Father, to flee our sins and our selfishness and turn more and more into you. And we do pray that you will comfort and protect, strengthen your people here this morning and those around the world as we struggle and grieve through life's many troubles. We pray for those who are especially troubled, those who are grieved and sorrowful, being the middle of very difficult circumstances. Comfort them with your spirit and give them a surety of the truth of your promises in Jesus. We ask that your comfort and your truth would increasingly be given to those who've been shaken because of the failures and the sins that exist within the church. And we do pray for our pastors, leaders, volunteers here at Redemption. We ask that you'd guard, encourage, and sustain them as they serve this church and as they serve in the community to minister the truth of Christ. We pray that you'd give them glimpses that their labors are not in vain, but that you are producing fruit. And I pray for each of us, as well as for us as a church and for your church around the world, Lord. Shape us and use us to be a sweet aroma that reflects you and reflects your goodness, O God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.